Welcome to the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser Podcast, where we help nonprofits reimagine generosity and put the joy back in fundraising. Hear from leading nonprofit fundraisers and marketers as they reveal strategies for strengthening donor relationships to propel your nonprofit forward. Hey, everybody, I'm here with Chris Horst. Chris is the VP of Development for Hope International. Uh, Chris has been a friend for a while, and he's been instrumental in helping Hope raise $17 million annually. He oversees a team of 25 development reps. I'm excited to have Chris on the podcast today talking a little bit about what he's learned at Hope. Hey, Chris, how are you? Doing well, Gabe. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a joy to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for jumping on. So before we um, kind of get into the nuts and bolts of what you guys are doing at Hope, I want to take a minute and just kind of tell us a little bit about, number one, how you got into advancement, and then specifically how you got hooked up with Hope. Well, like most people in fundraising, I stumbled into uh, development, advancement, fundraising, whatever you're favorite term is and and it wasn't something i was proactively pursuing i actually had a pretty strong animus against fundraising i remember thinking early on in my nonprofit life that fundraisers were doing the work that was like a necessary evil uh that it was it was awful but someone had to do it in order to to accomplish the good stuff uh in the work we're doing at hope around the world or in homeless shelters or hospitals that somebody had to do it, uh, so it was necessary, but it wasn't inherently evil. Uh, so I, my boss basically pitched to me that I should move into development, and, and I saw it as an opportunity to expand my skill set and try something new, uh, but I really thought there, that I wouldn't last long. That was, I made the decision nine years ago. So obviously, uh, either I'm uh, really change averse or I found something that I really love to do. And I think it's the latter. I, I find fundraising not only to not be a necessary evil, but it's not even neutral. It's a necessary good. It's actually something that is good for, for the fundraiser. It's good for the donor to release funds that we've been entrusted with to do this good work. That it's, it's, it's uh, something that heals what ails us as, as humans and, so I, I love being in fundraising. So that's, that's how I've gotten into it. And uh, each journey along the way, I've taken on more responsibility and gotten more opportunities to do fundraising in different places and um, manage people that are fundraising. And, and I really, genuinely, sincerely loving it. No, that's great, man. I wish, uh, I wish more of the organizations we talked to could hear that story. I love hearing about how generosity isn't a necessary evil, that it's actually core to the process of making change in the world and engaging people in work. And so, yeah, that's great to hear. So uh, as you've gotten into it, sort of the last nine years, what's been your kind of biggest lesson you think you've learned in that process? I, I think that the, the, the thing I would tell you when I started working at Hope International 11 years ago is that I, I really thought we had the thing. And I've met enough nonprofit people to know that that feeling of sort of we have this organizational brilliance that no other organization has and no other cause has 
like we're upstream from from you from the solutions all the other guys have and and you know they that we have to you have to address the issue that we're passionate about if you ever want to address the issue that they're passionate about and that's an exhausting posture because you're constantly defensive uh, and constantly in a place where you're comparing yourself against the nonprofit beside you and you're making the case for why their work is just okay and your work is exceptional and so I think that the biggest lesson I've learned is to be open-handed with what we're good at and also admit the areas where we have limitations and be just forthright about that with donors to say, you know what, this isn't a silver bullet. And not only is it not a silver bullet, there's some times we cause more harm than good. And there are times where our intervention, you know, faith-based microfinance, the places we work, where it, it doesn't really move the needle. Uh, there are times when it does. And listen, I believe in the work we do and I believe in our people, but just uh, releasing that sort of pressure to constantly be the very best thing, you know, and it's the newest and most novel, most innovative, most creative. Uh, and just like, you know what, we're on a journey and we get some things right and we get a lot of things wrong and we need the help of all sorts of other organizations to be able to accomplish it. I think coming to that place of recognizing our organizational limitations and our cultural change limitations has been really freeing. Oh, it's incredibly freeing. I think um, transparency is is such a huge deal, and in a in a space that's not always terribly transparent. The ironic thing about it is it it's actually can be a little bit winsome. I mean, you sort of fear that man, nobody's going to get us if we admit when we made a mistake, and it's mm -hmm. often quite the opposite because everybody knows that you know we live in a pretty jacked up world, and everybody mm -hmm. knows that everybody else's stuff is a train wreck typically. So to say it out loud and admit some of it is actually can be helpful. So. That's great. I love that. Okay, so you could uh, you could almost call it a strategy. Uh, I'll just say, like, <laughs> yeah, one of our key donors. I remember calling about a ten thousand dollar fraud incident we had. He given hundreds hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to Hope, and uh, so called about a called him about a fraud incident. It's sort of naming the fact that we had ten thousand dollars stolen by one of our staff members in one of the countries where we work. And after that call, and he grilled us for a while, but after that call, he said, you know what? This is the best fundraising call you've ever had. I've never believed in hope more uh, <laughs> than now because I know my own That's business great. and all your glossy brochures and websites, like at a certain level, I just don't believe that it's true. Yeah. And so it, I do think that there's some element of it that's wise uh, in terms yeah. of how forthright we should be. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Okay, let, I want to talk about something that's just um, – that has amazed me about you and your career over the last years and that you have hired 30 people and a freakishly large number of those people have stuck with you like five years or more. Um, so in a world of uh, fundraising that is perpetually churning, like kind of how have you approached hiring your team and, and what is what does the makeup of your team look like today hmm. yeah well i am so grateful that that has been true for us i mean the, the average as you said i mean the average in the industry depending on the study you look at and i've looked at a number of them it's either 12 or 18 months is the average tenure for a fundraiser and and we have yeah i've got 11 people i think right now that have worked for me for more than five years and have a really high retention rate of those 30 people we hired that 
many of them have, have stayed. Uh, and we've found that it's typically in year four or five where fundraisers really take off and you really see them flourish and have confidence in their role, confidence in their region, confidence in their relationships. I think the biggest thing for us and the reason that we've been able to have high levels of retention and people that have remained satisfied in their work and satisfied uh, in the challenges of the job is that we're fairly ruthless about being clear about expectations. I think in our industry, you ask anyone that works as a fundraiser or even anyone that doesn't, how is a fundraiser assessed? How is their, their uh, effectiveness measured? And it's in the very name of what we do. It's how many, how, like, how many funds have you raised? How much money has come in the door? And the truth is that when you place really high fundraising expectations on someone out of the gate, uh, it almost always forces the fundraiser to do things that don't make them enjoy their work. And it doesn't make donors enjoy their work. Um, it's forcing people to coerce and twist arms and ask before they should ask and um, and so what you end up seeing in a lot of cases is that that's the reason why a fundraiser doesn't work out. They didn't raise enough quickly enough, uh, or they felt like they had so much pressure to raise so much so soon that they hated it. And so they quit and went and did something else and went back to their previous career or whatever. Uh, so we really downplay the importance. We, we, we play up the importance of hiring right and hiring people that we want to spend time with and that have really high levels of emotional intelligence. And in our case, spiritual maturity as a faith-based organization, people that we want to be with. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we take our time and make sure we're hiring people that we want to be with. Uh, and then if that is true, then we're going to say, listen, you have our confidence. And if you're willing to stick with us uh, and stick at this work for, for a while, we want to stick with you. It's at will if you don't do your job, you're going to lose it. But our starting point is trust. And our starting point is assuming that you want to do this job well. So we measure things that are not financial and place those things at a much higher priority early on. So a couple of specific things. Uh, one, uh, we look at the, the leading indicator for us for what will produce success five years from now is that you're spending time face-to-face -face with people. In a very busy world, where our inboxes and our mailboxes and our voicemail boxes uh, are full, uh, we believe that being face-to-face -face with donors, potential donors with people, is the difference maker. So we measure, you know, for us, 30 face-to-face -face meetings logged in our database every single month. That is the most important metric in your first two years in the job. Number two, we look at donor retention rates. Uh, you better be able to thank people well and know who is given to the organization. Uh, so people stop giving to organizations mostly for stupid reasons. And so we measure retention rate, and that's hugely important to us, that uh, you might not be able to go out and win new donations, but for the people that are already giving, that you're entrusted to manage that important and precious relationship, uh, there are going to be some that stop giving, but a lot of them should continue to give. Uh, and then the third is that your ability to mobilize people. So we look at, can you put on a big event each year? Can you rally a group of supporters to join a board? Uh, and become advocates with you, allies with you in the work. So if all of those things are there, fundraising success is going to happen. It might not happen in year one. It might not happen in year two, but it will happen. Um, and, and so I think that's been the biggest thing for why we've had success in retaining staff is that we really, uh, we're pretty different in how we measure the performance of our fundraisers. Yeah, that's amazing. 
I love that approach. It, it takes guts to, you know, to say, Hey, this, the second question I'm asking somebody in interview number two, based on how they answer it means they may or may not have robust fundraising relationships four to five years from now. I mean, that's, it's, it takes a commitment on, on you guys' part to be able to pull that off. But man, I love it as a cultural norm. It's fantastic. Mm. Um, our board, to their credit, was supportive of that from the beginning and said, we're going to take a hit on our fundraising metrics and our mm-hmm. overhead metrics for a few years uh, because we're going to hire people that might not produce results right away. And yeah. it's proven to be a really good risk. Oh, that's great. That's really helpful. I, and I think so many people even listen to this but, um, would get a lot of value if they take that seriously. I mean, that that can be sort of cultural changing within the organization, but even change the face of generosity outside of the organization too. Um, okay. Well, uh, uh, before I let you go here, I kind of want to actually fire off a few questions that are more personal and some kind of like even how you maintain your day and how you get through life kind of things, if that's okay. That's great. Um, before we jump into that, I know uh, you and I have one thing in common. That's just a passion for adoption and foster care. And so um, I always like to promote my own personal agenda on these kind of things. And so I'd, <laughs> I'd love for you to to talk a little bit about how you guys as a family have been involved in foster care and kind of your, your uh, passion for that and kind of what a day in the life at your house looks like. Yeah. Well, my, my brother-in-law and his family, they pioneered the way in foster care in my family. And so when we saw them walk into foster care and become foster parents and then adoptive parents, we just felt like, well, we have extra bedrooms in our house and we have extra financial margin and we have time and we have love to give to more kids. And and there are kids in Denver where I live that they don't have a place to put their head down and they're in a group home or they're in a really bad foster care environment, a really unloving home sometimes. Uh, or, you know, we've had situations before where we've gotten a call in the middle of the night and the caseworkers told us, like, we don't have a place for this child to sleep tonight. Like, they're going to have to sleep in my office mm. um, unless there's a foster family that says yes. And so we started our journey a couple of years ago. It took us a while to get approved, trained. I mean, rightfully so. There's a lot of red tape that you have to go through to be entrusted legally as uh, parents for these children when they're in the midst of chaos. Mm. But last year, we had four placements. They were all short. Uh, five children. So one one of the placements was a sibling set, uh, two sisters. Uh, they've all been young children between the ages of six weeks and four years of age. Mm-hmm. And the, the placements have all been overnight placements. So like we get wow. the call and either that night or the next day, uh, the child is showing up. So some sort of issue has happened at home. Parents have gotten in trouble in some way, um, you know, neglect or drug use or, you know, some sort of um, criminal offense. And there's no one close that's safe for the children to stay with, no family or kin uh, that is capable or able at that time or even geographically close enough to be able to care for the child. And so we've just opened up our home to those children. There have been times, two of the placements, the children arrived and they were asleep, which is a sort of shocking thing because we took them in and put them in bed. And in the morning, we're like, hi, like, welcome. (laughs) You know, we're here to care for you. And um, there was one time we didn't, the the little boy didn't speak. Uh, His English was really delayed. 
Uh-huh. And, and we didn't know what, what language he spoke. And so we were trying our Spanish and trying, <laughs> you know, everything we could to like get through to him. And eventually we realized he just didn't have great English, but we just had yeah. no information. Oh so gosh. yeah, it's been an amazing journey. And, you know, I, I'll just finish by saying that like an amazing hike, foster care and being an ado- adoptive or foster care family, it's exhausting, it's frustrating, it's exhilarating, it's rewarding, it's beautiful, it's terrible. Uh, it is all those things kind of all the time and all blended together and it, it's totally worth it. Like we yeah. love it and it's, and I don't want to downplay how hard it is. Uh, yeah. It is not easy and it is, that does not mean it is not good. Yeah. Well, I love that. The illustration of a hike. I mean, that's, that's been very much our family's experience with um, particularly with the uh, adoption process, just seeing hmm. uh, me, my family and some close friends all sort of, uh, hike that proverbial path together. Mm. It is mm. it is a mess a lot of days, but mm. man, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So that's amazing. Mm. Um, oh, that's okay. That's great. Uh, just a couple like quick fire things because I want to let you get back to the important business of inspiring generosity here. Um, but just to finish up, uh, one is um, I know you said you didn't really want to plug this before we started, but I can't help but ask you about it. You're in the middle of writing a book. Um, or publishing a book. So t- talk to me a little bit about that. Like um, why a book? What's a book about? Uh, and, and why should I read it? Sure. Yeah. So I wrote a book with my boss, Peter Greer called Mission Drift. Uh-huh. And that came out a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, and this book is a follow up to that one. And it's called Rooting for Rivals. Uh, it'll be published through uh, Bethany House Publishers next year probably midsummer, uh, maybe, maybe early fall. And the basic concept is, you know, listen, uh, Americans right now, according to the latest studies are giving about 2% of their gross income to charitable causes. And, and we spend so much of our time as nonprofits, um, posturing and competing against each other for that 2%, as opposed to saying like, what would happen if we would link arms, we would lay down our boundaries and recognize that we exist for social good and we exist for the benefit of our neighbors. And that ought to mean that we are willing to cheer on each other, to <laughs> celebrate the successes of our rival organizations uh, and to, to be about things beyond the boundaries of our organization. And we just get so, uh, I, my experience, our experiences, we get so inwardly focused and navel gazing in our, organizational posture that we really don't even know what's happening outside of the four walls of what we do. Um, and so that's the book. It's, I think it's a, it's an important message for nonprofit leaders for nonprofit leaders. It's been a really fun book to work on. Uh, and I'm excited to, to share it. Yeah. So look for it on virtual and physical bookshelves next summer. Oh, that's great, man. Uh, what an amazing topic especially for our industry as somebody who's in this industry day in and day out. I don't, I can't think of a more necessary and important topic. People wonder why we've been at 2% of the GDP for the last however many years. And man, I, as a cause, like, I don't know that there's a bigger one than, than this one, which is, you know, why why can't we just share, you know, the pie Mm -hmm. could actually be bigger if we actually work together. And so, right. It's great. Um, Okay. Well, thanks so much. Okay. So quickly here, uh, book you're reading right now. What, what, uh, what's inspiring you in terms of what you're reading for yourself? 
So I love fiction. I just finished uh, the Harry Potter series for the second time. Awesome. And uh, for my birthday, my wife and I just got the, my wife and my, my kids just got me the next one, uh -huh. uh, which I can't remember what it's called. It's Harry, the newest Harry Potter book that's the, the actual um, screenplay. Yep. Uh, Harry, whatever that one's called. And then I'm also reading uh, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. So I just sure. had, we had our first baby girl. <laughs> Uh, six months ago, so I have two sons, and um, so I'm I'm diving into that book and learning what it's learning what's coming for me as a dad of a father of a girl. Well, I have a three-year-old girl, so, so not when not not at all not at all practical for like fundraising and nonprofit leadership, but yeah. really practical for me yeah. me staying sane is to read good stories like Harry Potter, uh, as well as uh, to, to to focus on my job as a dad too. Sorry yeah, to interrupt you. That's great. I was just going to say I have a three-year-old girl, so when you figure that one out, please give me a call. <laughs> Will do. I'm sure it'll be easy. Um, and then uh, podcasts you listen to, habits you have during the day to sort of stave off the madness of working uh, in the nonprofit space and, and manage kids. What's your routine look like for kind of staying sane, exercise, diet, podcasts, that kind of thing? Yeah, so on podcasts, I have a habit of listening to the most popular podcasts and then making fun of them to all my friends. So <laughs> I, I, need, I need to get better at that. But, you know, whether it's S-Town or Serial or yeah. the Richard Simmons podcast, I'll listen to it and I'll just be, I'll really lament that I spent that time <laughs> listening to it. Uh, but the one that I, I do love is How I Built This uh, with Guy Raz. I think that's a fun podcast and I've gotten lots of great ideas from it. And, and they're just super vulnerable uh, interviewees. Um, so Guy does a great job. I love that podcast. Uh, I, I'll tell you the biggest thing for me over the last year in terms of staying healthy as a fundraising manager is um, we, we, a bunch of us on my team read through the book Deep Work yep. and have instituted Deep Work Fridays. Oh, so on Fridays, we don't do any, any phone calls, scheduled phone calls, any meetings. Um, we shut down our email. Uh, and Skype and text messaging, boring emergencies from like 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. And really preserve that time for project-based work, work that requires you to think deeply. Uh, so it's trying to shut off all those networks and channels that come at you and allow you to sort of proactively pursue your work. Uh, and then uh, I'll share from a, from a physical perspective, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of like those, those little nudges that can help you to live more healthy lives. And so for me, the Fitbit is huge. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a very, very active pacer, walker. Whenever I'm on donor calls, I'm, you'll find mm -hmm. me walking my neighborhood or walking in my office. So I, I'm, very, I'm a very successful Fitbit walker and a very unsuccessful <laughs> like gym rat. Uh, so <laughs> I would say that's been huge. And then I use like a calorie tracker too uh, and track all my food uh, just as a way, even if I, I'm not like eating great, just tracking it is a yep. nudge to help me remember like what am I putting in my body and am I being a good steward of the body that, that I have? So those are a couple of quick thoughts uh, on how I take care of myself. And then spiritually, I just have to say this too, like being going to church every week, taking my family to church every week, it is a huge I mean, inconvenience on a weekend to do that, but we have found the ritual and practice of going to church and being a part of a church community has just been really life-giving and energizing for us. And as new parents coming off of like 
getting meals, hot meals delivered to our house once a week for four straight months. Uh, It's been a lifeline (laughs) just from a family perspective too, of being a part of a church community. So that's the other thing I would say in terms of health that's really kept us balanced. That's awesome. Yeah. It takes a village baby. And that's a, that's That's absolutely true. (laughs) Well, Chris, it has been a blast hanging out with you today, hearing what you guys are doing. Um, Hopefully for you guys listening to this, you're going to take especially some of the cultural norms that Chris has helped to put in place at Hope International and transfer you, uh, those to your organizations. I think in particular, Hope's thinking about uh, generosity and sort of rich whole relational generosity is maybe some of the best in the space. So hopefully this has been helpful. Um, we appreciate, Chris, your time and uh, look forward to seeing what you do in the future. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser. The podcast is brought to you by Virtuous, the CRM and marketing automation software helping charities raise more money and create more good. Be sure to rate and subscribe. For more resources, head to virtuouscrm.com.